It's good to see everyone here on a lovely spring day. Normally, I really enjoy looking forward to spring getting out of winter, but after, I think, about 20 years of being in Australia, I finally succumbed to hay fever. I think it is anyway. My nose is always runny, and it's not too comfortable, but I can empathize with those people now, and, yeah, I still enjoy the weather, though. Um, uh, this afternoon, we're going to continue our series on the book of Matthew, for those that are unaware, so I think we're up to part... What the part... Four, five, five now. Um, and the title of the sermon is called um, Strike Three, You're Out, so a baseball term. Uh, we're going to be con- concentrating on the book of Matthew in chapter 18. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open it up to there. If not, that's fine. It's on the screen, most of the verses. Anyway, about, I think about a month ago, I was teaching a grade three class. And, you know, grade threes are... Um, uh, two things though that I really dislike, not just great dudes, but any class, that two of my pet hates when teaching. Uh, one of them is when kids like to talk over each other or talk over me. It's just, I don't know, really disrespectful and I have not much tolerance for that. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, uh, when kids lie. I just, you know, it just, I don't know why I get really annoyed when kids lie, but, you know, I, that annoys me. So about a month ago, all over a month ago, I was teaching grade three class and we'll call her, I'll give her a name, Bindi. Um, so Bindi was, had, did something wrong, and as trivial as things that go wrong in the grade three classroom, I can't even remember what it was. But anyway, she, I saw what she did, and I said, hey, Bindi, uh, why did you do that? She's like, I didn't do it. Uh, uh, why are you lying to me? I saw that you did it. I'm not lying. I didn't do it like, with a straight face. I'm like, my goodness, I wasn't expecting that. So I think after recess, and it was a different issue. Again, I don't remember because great three issues you just don't remember. And same thing. I'm like, Bindi, you're doing it again. I'm like, no, I'm not. Bindi, that's the third time. I'm not doing it. Fourth, Bindi, that's the fourth time you are lying to me. What? And I, I you know, try to put on a more stern teacher voice. It's like, that's it. I'm running out of patience with, and at that moment, I just stopped. And I remember, hang on, I read something this morning. This morning I read, it wasn't Matthew 18, but it was Luke's version of the, exactly the same thing about Jesus saying something about forgiving people um, seven times. And I'm like, she's only up to four. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. So I stopped there and i like, all right, maybe there's, maybe I'll give you one more shot or a few more chances. So the, the sermon I want to explore, the question I want to explore today is, how many times are you meant to forgive someone? And it's actually a question that Peter asked Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles there, and continue your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. And in verse 21, if you're there, if not, just have a look at the screen. The Bible says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? So Peter throws up this number seven times. It seems like just, you know, just a random number at first. But um, if priests that day actually taught that the amount of times you meant to forgive somebody was actually just three times. If someone sins more than three times, you know, you've given them the quota, that's it. So Peter, I don't know what he's trying to do, trying to maybe look good in front of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, maybe not just three times, maybe seven times. And let's see Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, I did not say unto you seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So this, you can say, doing the math, it's 490, obviously. Is that a number literal? Is that maybe figurative? We'll talk about it a little bit later. But it seems like a lot either way, you know, a lot more than seven times, 490 times. I don't know anyone's ever kept tabs on anybody 490 times. Hopefully no one in your circle of friends wrongs you that often anyway, hopefully. Um, but 
Is he literal? Is it figurative? We'll figure it out in a second. But is forgiveness meant to be such a blanket statement where Jesus can just say, hey, just forgive? Is it that simple? Isn't forgiveness a lot more, I don't know, variable than that? Because I thought of three different things that I think might have, might sort of judge whether you forgive somebody or not. The first one, doesn't it depend on who that person is? Like, for example, if someone that's close to you, maybe you like that person more, maybe I'll give that person a few more chances. Or conversely, sometimes maybe I like that person I like and they know me really well, shouldn't they know um, what I get wrong by? So maybe your fuse is a little bit shorter with that person. I don't know. But anyways, maybe it depends quite a bit on the person. The other one is maybe it depends on the context of the um, the situation. I remember, uh, for those that were the Connect series about um, a month or so ago, um, Pastor Christian spoke a lot about, I don't know, he kept bringing him up driving and people cutting him off. And I'm like, oh, I relate to that. And every time someone cuts me off now, I'm always trying to think, instead of getting mad at the person, I'm like, maybe that person is going to a medical appointment and I see, okay, even though you're driving below the limit on the right lane, maybe you have some situation. So maybe it depends on the context and the situation as well, whether we, we deem it okay to forgive that person. And the third one, maybe it's a severity of how bad that wrong is. Like maybe if I forget to take up the trash, that's, you know, it's not too bad. We'll just have some trash for the next week. Or if I forget to um, bring in the clothes from outside, okay, maybe that's a little bit worse because then um, we, th- we have wet clothes and, you know, we'll suffer maybe a little bit more. Or maybe it's even worse where I might forget like an appointment or a date, which is like, you know, boom, catastrophic maybe. It depends which household you're living in. So these are all, <laughs> Bron's laughing at the back because these are all issues I can relate with. So yeah, it depends maybe on the severity of the issue as well. Um, the other thing I sort of thought about with forgiveness is, it's a big issue that's also, I think I was reading in the paper the other day, um, of people that are given, like, how much forgiveness should we offer some people, especially those convicted of, like, the terrible crimes such as murder or rape or something like that, how much um, leeway do we give them? There's a lot of issues, especially the news, uh, news issues that happened in the past few years about people who have been offered parole and their uh, outcries, like, why should we offer these people parole? They've already, you know, had their chance. Why should we give them another chance? And, you know, and the outcry from most people is saying that the justice system doesn't work that way. It's failed. It's failed because these people are allowed out. They, we're, we're giving them too many chances. So for Jesus just to say, hey, just give, just forgive, just keep forgiving, maybe it doesn't work in today's world or does it? So the first thing you've got a um, question about whether Jesus said is, I like math. So is Jesus being literal or is Jesus being figurative about the matter? Because it's fair, we can't just say, oh, I think he's being figurative or I just, oh, I think he's being literal. If we just leave it up to interpretation, that's kind of scary way to read the Bible because you can almost take it that way. Oh, that part's not literal. Oh, that part is figurative. Oh, that part's literal because I like it. There has to be hopefully more solid evidence when we read the Bible about that because otherwise the Bible can be open to pretty much any interpretation. So 490 or is it an infinite value? I put this picture up because um, I don't know if anyone's seen this. It's like Matthew being read out and being acted out. We watch this in primary school a lot. And this is the first time I saw Jesus a bit more less serious. Well, I don't know. When I read uh, the Bible as a kid, I always pictured whenever we read the Bible that Jesus was like, Really serious. Everything he said was in a stone cold, you know, really serious voice. But I saw this guy, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe he did say something a bit more lightheartedly. So that got me thinking a little bit about that. Um, in Matthew 18, I think though, Jesus sort of gives us little hints about whether he does speak figurative all the time or whether he's always literal. And the first one, if you have a look in um, verse, verse three, so Matthew chapter 18, verse three. 
Bible says there, Surely I say to you, unless you are uh, converted and... Oh, yeah, you're right, James. The screen has no color there. Uh, say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the context of this situation is the disciples are actually arguing amongst each other and they wanted Jesus to sort out of an issue of who is the greatest amongst them. And you just really think, just pause and think about that. When does that ever happen in work or in life? It's almost such, I can only think of it happening in a school setting. It's like, oh, Mr. Chang, you know, who's the, who's the, who's the, who do you like the best or who did the best at that test? Okay, I understand it from a kid, but you wouldn't expect this in the workplace. You wouldn't go up to the boss and be like, hey, who's like better? Who's been a better work, worker this week? Or you wouldn't be, it's like so, so childish. But Jesus responds in a, in a weird way. He says, you need to be like little children, which is like, hang on, Jesus. They're already acting like little children, trying to work out who's the best among themselves. And you tell them to be like little children. Luckily, though, he does clarify that point in verse 4 when he explains that, that being like little children, he doesn't mean a literal sense, but in the sense of humility. So he does clarify what he's talking about. Another example in verse 8, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 8, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. But, um, it is better for you to enter into the life lame or maim rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Now, I think we can all say amen that this is hopefully not a literal verse because otherwise, I don't know about you, but I'd be run out of body parts to chop off. I mean, Jesus surely here is speaking from um, in a figurative sense. And I think that's very true because throughout the, every time you read in the Bible, anyone that talks about cutting off their body parts or that sort of thing, in, in even in the context of worship, always had to do with some pagan religion in the terms of, oh, God will hear me more if I cut this, if I show my diligence to him in that. It says nothing anywhere else about, you know, maiming yourself. I think one person took it a bit too seriously. I read about this guy that um, he thought he lusted too much, so he actually castrated himself as a priest, and he thought he was better for it and using this as an example. So maybe there's a few examples of that, but also on the whole, you don't see any of the biblical heroes doing that sort of thing. No one's, you know, hobbling around. So I guess I think this is already, even from one chapter alone, that Jesus does have proof that he can speak in a figurative language. But obviously, when we look at each each um, example, it's good to see in the whole context of the Bible whether what he's saying is just here or everywhere else. And that's a really important point to remember. All right. We want to look at three different passages in the book of Matthew 18 because I think they really help us understand or help us to explore, answer that question, how many times should we really forgive somebody, especially if it's the same repeat offense or, you know, someone like that. So three stories in the Bible. So Matthew 18 verse 12 is the first one we're going to look at. Uh, Matthew 18 verse 12, read it up for you. Okay. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountain to seek the one that is straying? Um, and that he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, um, it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." I love this verse, and this isn't the only, isn't the only one like it, but there's a few times that the Bible tries to explore when God is truly, really happy. You know, sometimes when you talk to somebody, and if they're bored with the subject, they'll be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're like, you know, oh, sorry, the other way around. If someone talks to you and they're like not interested about a topic, they'll just be like, yeah, I'm just, you know, work was okay. But when someone talks something about their passion about, I don't know what it is, they're like, 
their eyes lit up, light up a little bit more. They talk a bit, maybe a bit faster. They're a bit more into it. And I think Jesus um, shows how God sometimes, when he's most excited, when he's most happy. And notice in this text here, it's just a very simple thing, or simple in some ways anyway, that when someone turns around, when someone turns, um, asks for forgiveness, calling back to God, that's when he's most delighted, most happy about and I think that's a real key, I think, I've, I've learned about forgiveness and when that's really important to go through that process because I'm sure you all know going through the reconciliation process, it's not pretty. Like, it's, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's, hey, I'm sorry for that. Okay, that's cool and great. But other times, I don't know, it can be sticky, messy. It's, it's a lot to flesh out sometimes. But in the end goal, isn't it all about the relationship? Aren't you entering that reconciliation process? Don't you want to seek that forgiveness because you want to restore that relationship? And that's what God does first and foremost. He puts the relationship as number one and everything else. He says, all right, I'm going to work through that to get to the relationship. Something that's really helped me is, um, have you heard of the phrase, um, don't make a um, hill over, I have it here. Mountain over a molehill. Yes, thanks. Okay. Don't make a mountain over a molehill. I think this is something that really helps me, especially in any relationship, when sometimes, you know, it's easy to get upset about little things and, you know, like a grade three class or like, sometimes I ask myself, will I even remember this tomorrow about this, whatever I'm arguing about? And honestly, sometimes a lot of arguments I've had, I'm like, what did we argue about? This is just like the next day. I don't even remember. I know I have bad memory and you can ask people that know me well, but which I'm sure those little things sometimes we don't even remember. So I think sometimes it helps a lot if we just don't and don't put those little things, make it too big of an issue that we don't make those things like winning the argument, the, the point. Cause I don't think the point is about winning the argument anytime. It's all about restoring that relationship. So I think that's a really good lesson that I've learned from this text. So jumping to the next one to Matthew 18, you can follow along in your Bibles or if you want to look on the screen, that's fine. Matthew 18, verse 15 and 17, 217. It's a really strong language and I don't know we see it often today, but anyway, we'll see what you think. Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses um, even to hear the church, let him to, um, be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Okay, so sort of Jesus um, giving the reconciliation process a bit more structure of how maybe you can go about if someone's not listening to you, maybe take someone, a friend along, which I think is good advice. I think that's worked in the past for me before. So, But the thing I want to highlight here is I'm going to put it up in red. I have. Notice that who takes the initiative in restoring the process? Is it the offender or the person that's been offended? Is it the person that's done the wrong, the person that has been, the wrong has been done to them? Who takes the initiative in starting off that reconciliation process? Isn't it the person, in this instance, it seems like it's the person that actually didn't, wasn't offended, but, but that person wanted to make the reconciliation anyway. I don't know, but I've, it's, for me, it's never been like that. Like whenever, if someone's done a wrong to me, it's like, okay, you have to come to me. Like, I have that right, right? I didn't do anything wrong. You need to come and say sorry to me. But here, it's the, it's kind of like a flip scenario where you as, as a person goes up to that person trying to start that reconciliation process. I think that's a new, bold way of thinking. And if you think about it even more clearly, um, carefully, isn't that what Jesus has done? Before we've even thought about being sorry, Jesus already reached out to us trying to start that process already. I think it takes a big 
person to be able to do that. I heard once heard, I heard a quote about um, I see if you agree with this about um, you should always try to uh, be willing to forgive that person even if they haven't even asked for your forgiveness. I thought that's huge. I mean, you know, like you have that's all that wrong, but for you to be able to go, okay, you haven't asked for it yet, but I'm gonna treat you as if you haven't even done that wrong. I think that takes a huge step, but think of how many scenarios where it, there'll be so much less conflict if you take up that that situation to be willing to forgive even if that person has, hasn't asked yet. I think that takes that sort of mindset to want to go into the, to the, the process of, okay, I know you've wronged me, but because I value our relationship, because I'm willing to forgive, I want to start this process of, and you know, it's never just purely one person wronging the other. It might be a mutual thing anyway, but the point is you still want to get into that process because you value the relationship. So I think there's wise words that Jesus has here. And I was a bit thrown off by the last bit, but you know, you just cast the guy off to treat him like heathen and tax collectors, you know, treat them like that. I'm like, Jesus, that you've started off really well, but then you've kind of gone really, you know, pushed too much, don't you think? Then I thought to myself, how did Jesus actually treat heathen and tax collectors? Didn't he spend more time with them than like anyone else? So it's not like, okay, three people have come with me. You're not listening. The whole church has come with me. You're not listening. Um, all right, that's it. Cool. Tax collector. Isn't it more, hey, I, I value you even more, like Jesus did with the tax collectors every time he hung out with them. So I think there's wise things in what Jesus is saying, in, um, even in that part. Now, we're going to go to the last section, the last part of the um, part of Matthew 18. And this is the part where he actually clarifies about his statement earlier. So we began this um, sermon exploring the idea of Peter asking, how many times do I need to forgive God? And Jesus gave the answer, not 70 times, um, not just seven times, 70 times seven. And he gave this story here as sort of a, a way to really hope to explain that um, clearly what he actually meant by that 70 times 7 phrase. So um, notice how I've highlighted, uh, underlined in blue, the money, how the Bible was written back then, 10,000 talents and 100 denarii. So I looked it up. I don't know what that money means today. It's not relevant to me if it's not even the same currency that I understand. So it pretty much equates put it up, the first um, amount to 60 million days wages, and the second amount, 100 denarii, to 100 days wages. Okay. So I uh, worked it out, I like math, so I looked up, what, okay, if let's say Australian, the base minimum wage, the first amount amounts to at least um, $8 billion, and the second amount is more in the region of $13,000. So that's the discrepancy between the two amounts. Okay, So if you want to do more math, it's 600,000 times different. Anyway, we'll get into the story now that we've got those figures cleared up. So Matthew 18... Uh, verse 23. Let's, let's have a look at this. Uh, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted, um, who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had um, began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents or um, 8 billion, was it? Yeah, 8 billion dollars. Um, but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell on before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him that debt. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, so that, um, what, $13,000, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. So the same wording, um, pretty much. And he would not, but went and threw him into the prison till he should pay the debt. Um, so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were all grieved and came and told their master all that he had been, uh, all had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just, uh, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my fa- heavenly father also will do to each of you from his heart, uh, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Okay. So I think that story really, firstly, it's a lot to take in, but putting in the money sort of makes it more, um, have more sense to me. In that, it really Jesus is trying to illustrate here. I think a bigger, bigger point of how much He has forgiven each and every one of us. I mean, that eight billion dollars. No one's gonna be get into. It's hard to get into that much debt. Who's gonna allow you to get into that much debt? You surely someone will cut you off, saying oh, I don't trust you or whatever. But to accrue that much debt, I can't think of anything else, any situation maybe except God doing for us to accrue that much debt in a way. But his what his I think the main lesson that we're trying to say. I'm sure you've read this story before is that when we experience forgiveness, shouldn't it cultivate in us a forgiving heart to forgive other people as well? Because isn't that what Jesus has done to each and every other one of us, that huge $8 billion debt? I mean, that's the only comparison I can think of to, for him to use such incredible, huge values that doesn't comprehend. So I think the more we forgive each other, I think the more that we, we can see it, the better it is for us to reciprocate and go on. So I guess a challenge here could be for us to start that trend, a forgiving trend, uh, it might not be very prevalent today, but maybe we, we as Christians can really the ones that kick that off saying, okay, um, I've been forgiven a lot. I can forgive you for that. What's surely not a lot. And the question, uh, the story again ends a little bit sad. I mean, the guy goes off and he's like, would, would be punished. But let me ask you a question. Based on everything we've learned today, based on all the things you learned about God and how he looks at forgiveness, if that man said the same thing again, I'm so, I'm sorry. I'm gonna. All right, I'll forgive that debt. Can you please forgive me still of my debt? What would that master say? Would he say, "No, nope, you've had your chance. You've clearly had your chance. You know, I've given you a debt. You had your chance. You failed." Would he say that? I can't picture that master saying that. Based on everything we started today, based on the point Jesus is trying to illustrate about the whole seventy times seven, I don't think that. You know, if he truly repented and went back to God, I think the answer might be the same thing. All right, I'll forgive you your debt. Maybe you should do the same also. But to answer that question even more clearly, and the last verse I want to finish up on today, if we're ever in doubt um, how much we are to forgive to someone, this is God's idea. This is how I think what God goes through his mind and how he treats forgiveness and how he reacts to this whole situation. And in the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the Bible says, but where sin abounded, Grace abounded much more. Read that one more time. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And the question I want to leave you today is, what forgiveness can you possibly withhold uh, knowing that the price Jesus has paid for you? What can you possibly not forgive someone for knowing what Jesus has done for you? And I want to end today with us. Really, it's I, I think I watched this about 10 years ago, roughly. It's one of the biggest stories of forgiveness that still blows my mind today. It's a story about um, Nate Saint. I don't know if you guys heard of him before. 
But basically, I'll, I'll show you the video in a second, so an interview that happens. But to give you a little bit of background on that story, it happened uh, long ago in 1956 in Ecuador. And it's, I can't pronounce this very well, the Waldoni people were a, a savage tribe that lived within the jungle area. And five missionaries thought it was a good idea to go live with them, to assimilate with them, and to try and reach out to them and present the gospel message to these guys. And Nate Saint being the one of the main guys that, that went out there. So how it started was they started exchanging gifts, trying to get to know the people, trying to know, hey, we're okay, we're friends. But what happened one day in 1956 was um, there was a group of tribes, I don't know what unfolded exactly to cause it, but they actually got out spears and machetes and killed the people by the river, all five missionaries. And so sad story and if we ended right there, but gladly it didn't because Nate's um, sister, Rachel, actually stayed along with them. And not only her, but uh, one of the people that was killed, his wife, also sat along with that tribe. I mean, how can you... Uh, that, that already? If I stopped the story there, that already would have blown my mind, but it goes even further than that. They tried to continue the work that the five people had done, despite killing their brother and husband, and they got they got in because they um, the tribe saw them as women. They said, okay, we're, they're not threats somehow, so they're okay. So slowly they assimilated them into their culture, and eventually that that Waldoni people actually converted all of the tribe into Christianity. And the biggest part of the story that I think really hit me, and I'm going to show you in a second, is that um, Nate's son, Steve, actually went to live with them after Rachel died, just of old age, I believe. Um, um, and Steve actually was adopted by one of the men that actually killed his father. He, uh, the, the, the Nate, uh, Steve refers to that man as like uh, grandfather, and the tribe people call him, I think, a bear bear or something, like a baby, like his child. So the man that killed his father. And so the, what I'm going to show you is a concert that happened, I think, about 13 years ago. And it's, a, it's an interview between um, um, Steve Saint, so the son of Nate, and the man, uh, the grandfather. And he explains to you, the grandfather explains to you how he feels about each other at the moment. Okay, so let me, sh- let me just show you end of that video. People ask Grandfather and me two questions all the time. They want to know if it's really true that we love each other. If you want to know for sure, you have to come on the tour bus with us and and see for yourself. But the other question that they ask us is how something like this can happen. A USA Today editor, when he was interviewing us, said, you know, I can understand possibly forgiving the man who killed your father, but he said, but loving him, that seems almost morbid. And you know, it would be if it wasn't true. But the answer to why and how something like this can happen is really very simple. It's God's grace and the power of his word. Now I'm going to ask grandfather to tell you in his own talk what God has done for him. And then I'm going to translate it into your talk as best as I can. A long time ago, I wasn't a God follower. Nobody had ever come to teach me how. Even my parents and grandparents, the ancient ones too, nobody had ever come to teach them how could we walk this trail. 
We hadn't seen the markings that mark this trail. So how could we find it? And then he said, what are we going to do? And then one day, two women came to live with us. One was Dayuma, who had fled from killings in the tribe. And the other one, he said, was Nemo, star, my Aunt Rachel. Coming, they said, are you people living angry and hating like you used to? Haven't you seen God's markings? And we said, how could we see it? And then they said to us, people, if you keep walking your own trail, when you come to the end, what's going to happen to you? Where will you be? And we had to say, coming to the end of our trail, they'll just put us in the hole in the ground and we'll be dead. Grandfather said, and then, and then something that I didn't expect happened. I had been listening to this talk and I knew it was a good talk. But because my heart was so dark, I couldn't understand it. He said, but then the creator, Wangungi, he sent Wangungi Onawoka, his Holy Spirit, coming he took a very strong blood that Jesus, his son, dripped and dripped for me. And with that strong blood, he did what you foreigners do with soap. When your clothes are dirty and they have stains on them and you have to wash them, Wengung Yonawoka took Itota's blood and with that very strong blood, he washed my heart until it was clean like the sky when it has no clouds in it. If you go and speak God's carvings, there will be some people who will say, but I don't want to walk this trail. Well, you just keep walking, but you keep inviting others because others are going to say yes, and they're going to come walking this trail with you. Grandfather says, I can't stay here in your place for very much longer. I have to go back to my place with all the trees and speak to my own people there. And maybe I'm not going to see you again, but if you're a God follower and here tonight, when we go to heaven... He said, then I'm going to be talking to you myself. I think he means without Baba interpreting for him. <laughs> Grandfather says, are you foreigners understanding me? And then he said, if you're understanding me, then are you going to say, Ooh. that's how the Waurani in a group say yes. So, minipa."
I want to ask Minkai to do one more thing before he and Steve leave stage. And uh, this has been such a special thing for us to get to do night after night to uh, share with you, I believe, the closest thing to the music of heaven I can imagine as Minkai sings in his language of our Redeemer's faithfulness and I'll sing in our language of our Redeemer's faithfulness to us. As I look back on this road I've traveled I see so many times He's carried me through If there's one thing that I've learned in my life My Redeemer is faithful and true My Redeemer is faithful and true Everything he said he will do and every morning his mercies are new My Redeemer is faithful and 